we seem to uh, perhaps have forgotten what our subject is because it's sort of been a while, I guess, uh, since we've talked about Barnabas, almost a week. <laughs> so uh, you'll remember that our first study was about uh, his generosity from a practical and financial viewpoint, uh, that he was a very close friend of the man Saul who later became the Apostle Paul and introduced him into the Ecclesia. But he was a good man, described as a good man up there in the Ecclesia of Antioch because he, he blended that together and helped that Ecclesia to grow. And now we're going to see another dimension of Barnabas, really quite multi-layered this particular brother as he sort of takes risks and uh, extends the truth now beyond that little warmth of the Ecclesia there in Antioch uh, to boundaries and countries unknown we might say. So, in a, in a very wonderful way, uh, this man Barnabas, I would say, was living the spirit of the atonement. You know, we often talk about the atonement in, in theoretical terms and what it means and the sacrifice of Christ, but sort of when we want to transfer it to almost a three-dimensional picture, what does that mean? I think we've got in this man Barnabas who lived the atonement because the word atonement, of course, is reconciliation. It almost seems that every little snapshot we're taking of Barnabas in some area, whether it's an individual or whether it's an ecclesia or multi-ecclesia, he's bringing them together and he's reconciling. So, you know, for us, I guess that's the challenge, that we've got to live the atonement as well as believe and understand it. So we notice that uh, Barnabas was selected from the Jerusalem ecclesia to go up to Antioch and to help grow and nurture the brothers and sisters there. And he travelled out to Tarsus because he needed some extra support for himself and he was big enough to realise that he couldn't do everything. And so he brought and encouraged... Saul of Tarsus to come and assist him. So they together spent a year, one year, it's recorded here in the narrative, in the, in the scripture for us, one year there in Antioch uh, growing and developing the truth. And I guess often we sort of forget uh, the background domestic duties for, for Barnabas. We don't know, did he have a wife? Perhaps not. But, you know, it's a big thing just to take a year off and, and go somewhere and help another ecclesia. But Barnabas was that sort of very generous person. And we notice as well what is particularly important is that Barnabas, you know, he wasn't just a fuzzy emotional type of person. Sometimes, you know, within the realms of people that we mix with, we get those people who are very warm and encouraging, but that's about all they ever are. There's no real foundation. And Barnabas was not that sort of man. He had a very deep foundation and love of the scriptures as well. So he wasn't just warm and fuzzy. So when we come back into the chapter 13 and verse 1, which is really where we want to start off this little adventure with Barnabas, we notice that he's introduced that into the Ecclesia. So chapter 13 and verse 1 uh, gives us a little background of the Ecclesia at Antioch. It says, Now there were in the Ecclesia that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. So, you know, as far as Barnabas was concerned, that's the starting point and the foundation of the building of this ecclesia. So it wasn't all about just the love of Jesus and come on in and you know, you'll be comfortable. There were prophets and teachers established in that ecclesia and it lists us. And guess who heads off the list? It's Barnabas and then Simeon and then Lucius and then Mananaim and then uh, others as well. So there's, there's around about five brethren that are in this particular ecclesia and they're helping to develop prophets and teachers. So what we're establishing right here and now is that Barnabas of course as a prophet, he's defined as a prophet, had the capability of serious teaching and growing and nurturing the ecclesia. 
And it's interesting when we look at the construction of how Barnabas and Saul are connected together, that Barnabas always heads the list. All right? the, these are important reflections. So right back in chapter 9, we notice that Barnabas took him, Barnabas sought Saul. It was Barnabas and Saul in chapter 11, verse 30. Barnabas and Saul all the way through until we get to our chapter tonight where, of course, Paul now grows into that leadership role, sort of being off the scene for, for 10 years, or really for 14 years, uh, well, 10 years at Antioch, uh, and now he's going to come back into the scene and they're going to head off onto mission work. So here's where sort of that transition takes place, where Saul takes a leadership role and Barnabas backs him up. So it's interesting just to see the construction of that particular uh, narrative. But here in verse 1, again, significant that Barnabas heads the list. So his, uh, his character and his love of the scriptures really became a point of why these two men, Barnabas and Saul, were chosen now to spring forth into foreign lands and develop uh, the truth because they were eminently qualified. So this sound basis of, of prophets and teachers really give us the, the idea of what the Antioch Ecclesia is all about and, of course, would have been a great comfort to the elders in the Jerusalem Ecclesia. This just wasn't a sort of a fuzzy ecclesia growing up north. It was full of Gentiles who didn't really understand the foundational aspects of the truth. So it's very clear there in verse 1, this prophets and teachers. And you know, the Apostle Paul, a little bit later on, wrote to the Corinthians, remember, because they got the balance out, out, of, out of whack, really. In Corinthians, he says, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has set some in the ecclesia, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that gifts, and he sort of spirals down to, on the end, he puts the gift of speaking in tongues. So in the Corinthian ecclesia, we know they had that issue of brethren wanted to be prominent and they sort of display these pseudo gifts that they thought they had, all for you know, the dynamics of their personality. That was not the case with Barnabas, wasn't the case with the Antioch ecclesia, uh, they'd established it very firmly on teaching and prophecy. So Barnabas, here's another little point that we're learning about his character, he was a foundation when it came to prof prophetical utterances or prophecy or explaining the scriptures. And remember, if you had our first study, uh, that was his name, Barnabas, son of prophecy, son of inspiration. And remember, the apostles added that nickname, Son of Encouragement. So he not only had a depth as far as the knowledge of the scriptures was concerned, he could project that with energy and with enthusiasm and encouragement as a comfort. It wasn't just all theory, it was living reality. So he blended that and he became a very uh, powerful influence for bringing people into the truth. And as we say, he heads this particular list of five brethren. Well, of course, it's interesting to see those five brethren as well that are listed there as prophets and teachers because they come from a, a beautiful variety of different backgrounds. So you've got Barnabas, who came from Cyprus. Of course, his ethnicity was a Hebraic Jew. We've got Simon, who's nicknamed Niger, which means black, comes from Cyrene, northern Africa. And, of course, there was a, another whole area there. Lucius came from Cyrene as well and perhaps uh, returning Jews, proselytes, of course, he would appeal to them. Manaem was an Idumean, uh, had Greek and Herodian background, and Saul, of course, Tarsus, Jerusalem, well, he was a Roman citizen. He'd come back from Tarsus. So again, you know, you've got this amazing blend of five prominent teachers who established foundational work there in the Ecclesia at Antioch. And so they came from all different stratas. 
Um, so as we, as we know there, there was Menahem who came from quite a, a qualified background and perhaps would have mixed with some of the aristocracy uh, and the higher end of what we, we might call the, the, the strata levels there in society. So these are all blended in and they had financial benefits, uh, religious differences, nationalities and colour as well. So it was sort of quite a nice background there. And we actually know a little bit about the first one after uh, Barnabas, of course, is Simeon. Well, he was a, a brother uh, in the truth and we've got a little uh, background to, to Simeon back in uh, Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. So he was the brother. It says, and they compel one Simon or Simeon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So when Mark writes his gospel record, he's including his sons, which the brothers and sisters knew because they came into the truth. Now, it says he was a, a Cyrenian, so he's from North Africa. There's a little bit of, of a comment back in Acts chapter 6 in one of our earlier studies. It says, some of these belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia, which disputed with Stephen. So it seems as though there may be connections back there that these were synagogues that catered for various elements of returning Jews. And, of course, uh, Simeon, a Cyrenian, was perhaps a member of one of those uh, synagogues and he came to the truth, perhaps through the work of, of Stephen, or certainly listened to this man Saul, who was a Pharisee at the time, argue with members of the, the um, synagogue. So there were quite uh, a broad range of racial, and we might even say cultural divisions, uh, that, that were there in this particular ecclesia. But it's beautiful how Barnabas and Saul, of course, and these brethren were able to blend all that together so that different cultures were able to integrate of course, in the ecclesia. And that's a, a challenge, I think, for all of us. As we look around, we, we come from all different levels, different areas in life, uh, different stratas, different status in life. But the beautiful thing about the scripture, if it's grounded properly on the word of God, is that we can all mix together because we have that one bonding element of our love of the word of God. And so this is the atmosphere that these five men fed into that ecclesia. And although there was this broad cultural aspect, they blended together and they grew. And I always think of my early years back in Wood Woodville when we were growing up. And, of course, we had this influx of different ethnicities, Greek and Italian brethren. And, of course, it was always amazing to us sort of uh, distant sort of English extraction to you know, handshake people very courteously. And, of course, we'd have the Greek and the Italians, they'd be up there hugging and kissing each other. And for us, it was like almost a frightening experience. <laughs> but they were very emotionally connected. And, of course, you know, I, I will remember some of these Greek brethren having very robust and vigorous discussions here in the centre aisle, and you'd be thinking, oh, wait a minute, someone's going to get their fists out soon. And then they'd end the discussion, hug each other, and off they go. And we're thinking, wow, that's amazing. But that's what it should be like, of course, and that's what was happening here in this environment of uh, Antioch. So the combination, of course, of these uh, brothers particularly was so beneficial that the spirit, you notice this in verse 2, selected them for an even greater task. So it says there, verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, I want Saul, or Barnabas, I should put it in the right order, Barnabas and Saul for this work. They fasted and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. So I didn't quite finish this story here. Um, so there's that reference there in chapter 11, talking about uh, the men of Cyrene. And, of course, 
there's a reference in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, one of the sons of Simeon here in the Roman Ecclesia there. But, oh, I didn't even do this one here, Brethren with Barnabas. So they found this ossuary of Alexander. Um, so the two sons are mentioned, and in fact, in recent times, they've found this ossuary of uh, Alexander, the son of Simon. So it's quite amazing that this particular family uh, have archaeological evidence of their existence. And they've found this ossuary uh, there in recent times, and... It's etched onto the stone there. Uh, this was one of our brethren back in the times of the Lord Jesus. Quite amazing. But coming, of course, as I said there to verse 3, where they laid their hands on them. Why did they do this? Why did they fast? Why did they lay hands? And that's very interesting in verse 3. When they had fasted, we obviously we don't, well, most of us probably don't do that unless we need to die for some particular reason. But, you know, why fasting? What was this whole process about? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a time of significance where you want to concentrate on the task ahead. You remember back in the times of Esther, Esther 4 verse 7, uh, Mordecai came to Esther and said, I want you to go before the king. And so Esther fasts because she's preparing herself to present herself to the king. So there's a task ahead. She wants to be focused. She wants to bring the, the blessing and overseeing care of God on that particular activity. And that's exactly what was happening here. So... They were selected for a task of significance. And, of course, they laid their hands upon them. And this has been sort of a, a demonstrated thing right through Old Testament and through New Testament as well. And I guess in a, in a shadow form, when a, a new candidate is baptised, we give them the right hand of fellowship, which would be, I guess, our equivalent to sort of laying on hands. And, well, we all go up and hug and shake hands as well. So it's a similar gesture as well. So it is a, a public endorsement and a personal encouragement that the pathway this person is going to go down, we support and we encourage. And it's just a, a wonderful thing when we see a newly baptised person, they have that endorsement of the whole ecclesia as we all line up because we want to give our personal welcome to them. So they laid their hands upon them. And that was an encouragement to Saul, Barnabas and Saul because they were going to go into territory that was unknown. It'd be a bit like us being selected for mission work in Azerbaijan. You know, it'd be a little bit frightening. I remember when we first went to China, you should see my face on the plane. It was like white, pale. We were uncertain as to what sort of environment we were going in. We'd never been there before. We were sort of on our own. So it was quite apprehensive. And so for, for Barnabas and Saul, this was very similar. They were going into territory, really, that, that ha had been unexplored. Uh, Brother Bolton has this lovely section in his book, and he really highlights this particular aspect that we tend to gloss over in the narrative. He said the incident or the first mission is told simply in a few words and no one reading for the first time would imagine, here it is, one of the greatest tasks ever set before men being inaugurated. Their message was not from an earthly potentate nor was it from an influential party or people. They carried no insignia or office, no herald announced their departure. Their only send-off had been fasting a prayer but their credentials were with a demonstration of spirit and power. And he goes on to say, ordinary individuals might have been appalled as they faced such a task. As far as Saul was concerned, people said of him, his bodily presence was weak and his speech of no account. So, you know, we need to repicture Paul, recalibrate Paul sometimes as to the person that we think he was. I love this last sentence. There was obviously nothing imposing in such a man, but whatever his appearance may have been, his body was tempered as steel. So, of course, that really is the characteristic of both these men. 
it was a, a, a difficult task that was ahead of them. It was the, just the unknown. And both of them were being launched out to spread the gospel. And out of all the resources that was available in the ecclesial world, not just Antioch, I mean, the Spirit could have selected anyone from anywhere. We've got Stephen the Evangelist. There were some of these, you know, quite... Um, Philip the Evangelist, I should say. Philip the Evangelist uh, with his, his daughters, obviously a very prophetic and a very profound family. They could have been sent out to foreign land. But of all the brothers in the ecclesia at that time, the Spirit selected Barnabas and Saul for this particular work. So two great men... And Barnabas was selected as one of them. Question, let's just stop for a minute and think, would God select you? You know, if, if, if for an extension or for the preaching or the development of the gospel, do you think you would have the qualifications to go somewhere into the unknown and to begin a, a preaching effort? I mean, that's quite a challenge. Um, if the spirit, which I know obviously we don't have, but if there was a, a divine spirit that directed us that you were the person that would be selected to go, would you go? I mean, there's got to be an acquiescence to that determination. And Barnabas had the respect and he had the ability and he went with Saul on this amazing work. So the thing I'm just trying to emphasise is we often place uh, a focus on, on Saul or Paul and his gospel preaching work as it launched out into foreign lands, different countries. But the point I want to make is Barnabas was his equal. All right. So there's the divine qualification and support that I want two men, Saul's got that determination, and Barnabas is his equal as far as knowledge is concerned and as far as presentation of the gospel. So there's two men that are selected. And it wouldn't be any small task for Barnabas to keep up with the, with the dynamics and the spirit and the energy and the enthusiasm of the Apostle Paul. You know, you've got to have two brethren that dovetail together and synchronise in their presentation of the gospel. So Barnabas you know, wasn't down here and Saul's up here. They were equally capable of presenting the gospel. And we'll see this as we flow through the narrative of chapter 13. And again, it required incredible stamina. That's why we say Barnabas' age is not that much different than Saul or the Apostle Paul. Maybe a few years older. It's not a, he's not an old man. It's around about the same age as Saul. And of course this is a trip that took around about 18 months. So this was no sort of two-week tourist venture uh, into a foreign land and then come back home. This was quite a phenomenal work. And of course we know the position here at Antioch and Pisidia. John Mark, the going got too tough for him and he defects back to Jerusalem. And of course Paul and Barnabas continue on their journey through that area of Antioch, Iconium, Lister and Derby, and then sort of back again to the Antioch Ecclesia. So interesting on the map there, you'll notice it began at Cyprus, which was important because that was the homeland of Barnabas. And so, you know, he goes as a starting point off into familiar territory uh, and then they launch into the unknown there. And as we say, somewhere between 18 to 24 months. So this little phrase is quite important through the chapter. This wasn't a journey of self-promotion. And as we skim down the chapter, you'll notice, uh, and it's worth colouring in, that the foundation of which they presented the gospel was not on their personality or you know, their eloquence or their ability to speak the scriptures. It was on the solid grounding of a logical expression of what the Bible was all about. So you see this beginning in verse 5, they preached the word, the word of God, the doctrine, the law, the word of salvation, the voice of the prophet, 
written in the second psalm, they're quoting the Old Testament, and so it all goes on. So this is explaining to us that when Barnabas went out with Saul, both of these men had a deep foundational understanding of the Bible. All right? Barnabas wasn't just trotting along behind Paul learning things. They were both able to distill with equal power. So they went off to, as we say in verse 4, uh, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, they departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So this, as we've said, was the homeland of Barnabas. It may be that he had some family connections there. Perhaps he had some friendships there. Um, remember also there were many of the members of the Antioch Ecclesia who were from Cyprus as well. That's back in chapter 11, verse 19 and 20. So it was... Uh, a good starting point for this particular mission work. And, of course, the other thing is particularly important is they've got an, an additional person, and that's John Mark. You'll notice that in verse 5. When they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to their minister. John Mark, actually, John Mark. So what's interesting about this um, expanded point of the narrative here? Here's Barnabas, he's related to John Mark, his cousin. So not only is he supporting Saul in preaching work, he's helping to nurture and develop John Mark in that situation. So a little bit of a snapshot of, well, who is John Mark? He's Barnabas's cousin, Colossians 4 verse 10. So there's a family connection here, which is going to be important as this narrative plays out toward the end of the chapter. His mother was Mary, Acts 12, wealthy family, is connected to Peter, wrote the Gospel of Mark, and very beautifully, later on, a valued worker with Paul. So Paul references John Mark and said he's valuable for preaching the Gospel. So it seems as though Saul learnt something uh, about being a father in the Ecclesia from Barnabas. Uh, just a note here, only here is his Jewish name, John. Uh, and an emphasis on Jewish synagogues. They spoke in the Jewish synagogues. This is the clue that he found preaching the Gentiles difficult or uncomfortable. So he's there described as their minister. What does all that mean? Well, interesting Greek word. Uh, it means basically an under rower. And the word is used here in 1 Corinthians 4. That a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ, under rowers. Now, this was a, a humble uh, service that was provided, you're, you're basically at the bottom of a boat rowing. So that's the, uh, that's the Greek word there, hyperetes, under rower, uh, definition, one who acts under direction, doesn't ask questions, who does the thing he's appointed to without hesitation, and who reports to the people that are superior. So John was the add-on uh, to help Barnabas and Saul preach the gospel. So what is this under rower? Just a couple of slides on this to explain that. Uh, they were called triremes, of course, and these were very, uh, very fast boats. So they had three layers of rowers on both sides, okay, uh, three different levels. Uh, they could, you know, go very fast. So there are five points about an under rower. Uh, they're called galley slaves, and they rowed to the captain's beak, all right, beat. So when you've got, you know, three rows and you've got hundreds of rowers, if they weren't synchronised, it'd be absolute chaos. So the captain or, or someone on the upper deck gave the, the sound with a drum and they would all row in synchronisation, all right? Or so 150 rows together or oars together, they were all rowing. Of course, fairly precise. 
And just a note here, a single inexpert rower could throw off the whole crew. So it's very important to synchronise, which I'm going to blend these out into ecclesial life. You know, we've got to row together. We've got to be in synchronisation. We don't want to cause disharmony. That creates chaos in the ecclesia. So here, secondly, they had to row together. And again, that's that point there. Um, it would, would tangle everybody up if they got, got out of timing. Uh, they had to trust the captain, all right? Now, they don't know where the boat's going. They're under the bottom of the deck. All they see is the person's head in front of them. So they've got no idea of direction. They just had to trust the captain. Uh, and for us as under-rowers, as ministers as well, we've got to trust the captain for the direction in life. We don't see where we're going always. It's not clear to us. But uh, got the note here, the slave was not allowed to question. His job was to obey the beat of the captain's drum and row his hardest. Again, you know, that's us in our lives. Uh, galley slave was committed for life. It wasn't like, well, you know, can I get to Rome on a cheap passage because I want to have a look at Rome, a bit of a tourist sort of idea. No, you, you're a galley slave for life. So it's a commitment there. Comfort was not a concern. Uh, and the leg chains bound every slave to the ship with deadly certainty. So if the ship went down, you went down with it. So point being, committed for life. And that's for ourselves, brothers and sisters. You know, this isn't just a, a happy life for us to explore relationships and, and enjoy our time together. We want part of that, of course. But essentially, it's uh, a commitment of faithful service. And in the end of it, there was no honour. I mean, you were just a, a galley slave. So if an under-row was ever seen, it was because he wasn't doing his job. So there were three tiers, rowers all down below. You were never seen. As an individual, you weren't that important. You just merged into the team. So they're all really good spiritual lessons for us. Uh, and here are those points, those uh, five points there as well. Remain obedient to the requirements of our master. Cooperate. Trust Yahweh to take us where we need to go. Be consistent. And there's no expectation in this life of some sort of amazing adulation. So for all of us, that's what John Mark was selected to be. Of course, really Saul and, uh, Saul and Barnabas were just mirror images of that in their service and in preaching the gospel. And I always like this particular statement here. You can't rock the ecclesial boat if you're busy rowing. That's so important for us, isn't it? So when you're doing nothing, you're looking around and looking at everybody else and thinking, well, what are they doing? Or, you know, I hope the arranging brethren know what they're up to. We're busy looking at everyone else. That's disastrous. If we get out of synchronisation on a boat, a perfectly balanced boat, and we stop doing our part, well, the boat eventually just goes around in circles because there's someone not rowing. So this is what John Mark was being educated in. And, of course, there were Barnabas and Saul in absolute synchronisation pushing the gospel boat forward. Well, as we read through the narrative, and you know the particular story, um, sadly for Barnabas in his own home country the uh, preaching effort was rejected because there was this man called Elymas, the sorcerer, who tried to dissuade uh, the proconsul there that you know this, this was not something to uh, waste his time on. So interesting, just thinking about that, thinking about that, Barnabas is in his home country, probably knows quite a few people there, maybe he grew up there. And here he comes and he's going to preach the gospel and it's rejected. And it was Christ, wasn't it, uh, in Matthew 13, verse 57. The narrative says, They took offence to him, but Jesus said, The only place a prophet isn't honoured is in his own hometown and his own house. It was the Lord Jesus Christ when he went back to Nazareth, of course. Hometown, people he knew, people you'd think would respond, but 
he was rejected of them. So that was something that Barnabas had to deal with. Imagine being on your first trip, you're all excited, you're going to preach the gospel. First stopping point, you meet a bit of resistance. Think, oh, what's the point of that? So Barnabas had to have that positive spirit with Saul to push forward and beyond. So they preached to this man, Sergius Paulus. So this is in verse 7, the deputy of the country. Sergius Paulus, he was a, a prudent man. He called for Barnabas and Saul and he wanted to hear about the word of God. So this man was a very important man. Uh, he answered directly to the Roman Senate. Uh, historically, when you look up, he, he's known as a man with a brilliant intellect and he had an interest in the supernatural, uh, was enticed by superstition. Well, there's lots of names when we come to verse 6. It said they found a certain Jew, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, uh, but he's also called, verse 8, Elymas. So there's a sorcerer, he's a false prophet, he's a Jew, his name's Bar-Jesus, but his name is changed in verse 8 to Elymas. So <laughs> there's a lot of confusing things happening here. But I think there's a play on all the names, of course, because Bar-Jesus means son of salvation. But he changed his name to Elymas, verse 8 says, so is his name by interpretation. Well, there's a whole connection there to Barnabas because he had his name changed as well. So Bar-Jesus was a false prophet. His name apparently meant, you know, son of salvation. He's confronted by Barnabas, a prophet. We know he's a prophet because verse 1 says Barnabas was a, a true uh, prophet and his name means son of prophecy. So Saul, of course, changed this uh, Bar-Jesus and calls him in verse 10. We notice in verse 10 he calls him the child of the devil, son of the devil. So there's a really sort of interesting uh, change in the narrative of all these uh, names and their meanings. It's interesting that at this point, Saul, verse 13, his name is changed to Paul. So Paul means little, and of course perhaps that's in contrast to the arrogance of this self-named prophet, Elymas. Now there's an interesting correlation between Elymas and Saul, and, and perhaps Saul saw a little bit of himself in that man. Because when we uh, throw up these, these contrasts, of course, you know, there's some prestigiousness in the early life of Saul. This man was with the deputy. Uh, he, he sort of determined that if any was found this way, he'd persecute them. This man resisted the right ways of the Lord. Uh, verse 12 talks about Saul had a vision of a man putting his hand upon him earlier on, back in chapter 9. Uh, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, verse 11. And you can look down and you get down to the bottom. Saul called Paul. Uh, whose name was Barges or Elymas, so his name was changed. So there's almost like a, an interplay here between what was going on in this situation and Paul, who, who became known by from this point, reflecting and thinking, you know what, I was much like this man. And interestingly, if you have a look at verse 11, see what Paul does. He says, you will be blind for a season. Uh, that's what happened to Saul, wasn't it? And it helped him to come to the truth. And interestingly, this is Paul's first miracle. This is Paul's first recorded miracle as an apostle. It's actually in a negative form. You know, mostly we tend to think, well, a miracle rise up and, you know, you're no longer lame or you're not deaf anymore, away you go. Well, this one was almost the reverse of that. But perhaps it was a miracle. I mean, I don't know the end of the story here. Maybe Paul saw a little bit of himself in this man and thought, well, this miracle will help him see what the truth is all about. You'll be blind for a season. So that's uh, exactly what happened there. And of course we've got uh, 
uh, very interesting comment in verse 47 of this chapter we had this reading is in relation to Paul it says for so hath the Lord commanded us saying I have set thee to be a light to the Gentiles but here in this very chapter he makes a, a Jew blind <laughs> so there's sort of bookends uh, to this particular incident so just got the comment here is at this point Saul began to call himself Paul which means little perhaps he saw a mirror image of himself in Elimus and was humbled by it it was the beginning of extensive work to the Gentiles set thee to be a light but his first, first action was to make a Jew blind and Paul had a little bit of a similar experience of course in Corinth I wonder this seemed to be the pattern of preaching the gospel so when he writes to the Corinthians he talks about the hidden things of dishonesty and craftiness which was sort of in Elimus he was a false prophet uh, he's named Bar son of a disciple of Jesus like he's deceitful uh, there was a mist of darkness he was blind for a season and then of course there's this position of, of light and knowledge flowing through so it almost seemed to be a pattern of developing that people need to be humbled uh, and need to have their vision restricted so they could see the glorious light of the gospel well as a result of the preaching effort in verse 12 we'll notice that the proconsul believed and I want to say not because of the miracle but a result what does it say verse 12 the deputy when he saw what was done believed being astonished at not the miracle it says the doctrine or the teaching of the, the Lord or the word so who is this Sergius Paulus well again a very interesting personality uh, this is a particular stone that was uh, well that's in the uh, museum in Turkey now it was an inscription found in Pisidia Antioch in Pisidia so historically when we drill down to this background of Sergius Paulus who's a very important individual his family had large estates up in Antioch this is where uh, Saul and Barnabas eventually went they went to Antioch and this individual had large family estates up there and the suggestion is perhaps he encouraged Saul and Barnabas to go off into that area uh, to teach to his family as well uh, one little commentator made an interesting point it says that here possibly there was the, the Roman process of adrogation I've never ever heard of that word adrogation and that's sort of like an adoption process and it's, it's sort of like a, a, a Roman who has enabled a, an adoption process to happen a connection a family relationship and hence they suggest that's why he was renamed on as Paul so it appears that this proconsul had uh, and developed a great love of the truth and a great love of these men and a little bit later on uh, the records historical records says he returned to Rome and was appointed curator of the Tiber and the channels he was in charge to stop the flooding in Rome so a very important individual and perhaps was an early foundational member of the ecclesia in Rome again we don't know a lot about how the Roman ecclesia developed but perhaps you know this was the ripple effect of the gospel so as we said before this is the first time in verse 13 where the name change structure occurs and for the first time Paul precedes, precedes Barnabas but I like to think and there's no evidence of this in the scripture that Barnabas was jealous or envious at any of this you know as Paul gradually grew in confidence uh, he of course became the presenter of the gospel and there's no evidence of any envy that that Barnabas had there's no jealousy I mean that could have been a point where Barnabas 
said, well, I'm going back with John Mark. But no, he's an unselfish man. It's the Barnabas spirit. He wants to move forward, encourage and bring people to Christ. So that's um, a wonderful thing. Well, we notice at the end of verse 13 there, it talks about John. End of verse 13 says, but John departed and returned to Jerusalem. So this word departed is twice. You'll notice there at the end of verse 13, John departing, returned to Jerusalem, verse 14, but when they departed. Now, this is a really interesting incident in the life of Barnabas. Now, just have a think about this. John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. John Mark obviously saying, look, the going's too hard. Oh, I, I need to go back to Jerusalem. I can't keep going on. Just imagine the pressure that placed on Barnabas now. Was he going to sort of side with a, a family relative and say, yeah, look, Paul, you know, what, what you've done here, it, it's just very forthright, you know, it's a, a dominating spirit. I, I don't want to be part of this. I'm going to hook up with John Mark. We'll head back to Jerusalem. Just a little bit too hard. So Barnabas is placed in a difficult quandary as to where his decision will go. And John Mark, of course, family connection, he could have easily uh, made that decision, criticised Paul for his excessive determination and Paul needed to be a bit more flexible and make allowances for people, but there was none of that. So the interesting thing here is Barnabas, rather than siding with his family, sided with the Apostle Paul. He chose to go on because he wasn't simply a people person, but he was a God-focused person. He had a mission. They were both selected for a mission. And they were both Saul, or Paul now, and Barnabas uh, really need to move forward on that mis mission. So it wasn't that he was unemotional. I think he would be quite upset. But it was almost like that position between Abraham and Lot. A decision had to be made, and that was not going to be a separating point between them. Both Barnabas and the Apostle Paul now move forward to preach the gospel. So we need to think about our own lives, brothers and sisters, and, and the connection to family. Do we sometimes use family as a bit of an excuse for not involving ourselves more in ecclesial work or the work or the role or responsibilities that we have? Sometimes we sort of draw back and we, because of family or connections or what we need to do with family, we sort of defect on the assistance that we need to give our spiritual family. We make an excuse for that. Uh, Jesus had a similar situation, didn't he, when his family stood without and someone said to Jesus, your family's outside, they, they want to have a discussion. Uh, what did Jesus do on that occasion? He said, well, I want you to know that this is my family. The people here are listening to the word of God. This is my family. So again, let's not use family as a bit of an excuse that, well, I'd like to do this and thanks very much for the offer, but, you know, I, I, I can't take that position at this time because, you know, I've got family responsibilities. I realise... We all have family responsibilities and we've got to make sure we get that balance. But what I'm saying is don't use it as an excuse. Barnabas could have had an excuse here for saying, well, I need to head back with John Mark, but he gave his support uh, to the Apostle Paul. And I think that's, again, the magnificent spirit of Barnabas, above and beyond an excuse to give his support, his wholehearted support to the work of the truth and to the, the support of, of the Apostle Paul. So... John Mark, of course, headed back to Jerusalem. And I just got a little, I guess, a, a digression a little bit. Mark wrote the gospel, and I wonder whether he thought about Barnabas when he wrote this particular record uh, about Christ and the parable and the statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Easier for a camel to go through a needle eye than a rich man. While Barnabas was rich, he was wealthy. I tell you, no one that was left home, brothers or sisters or lands, well, Barnabas, of course, gave up some valuable land uh, and he experienced persecution. We're going to see that in some of these journeys and he gave up a very prestigious position, possibly as we indicated on one of our first studies, perhaps as a member of the Sanhedrin. So they headed across in verse 13, uh, really gives us that, or verse 14, says they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So this is um, a very difficult area for preaching the gospel. In fact, uh, back in verse 13, we've got Perga in Pamphylia. Pamphylia. This word means of every tribe. So it's a sort of a geographical locator of the diverse races that inhabited that and quite hostile, that particular area. So they were heading into not some sort of cushy gospel proclamation work. They were heading into an area where there was a mix of races. And Paul remembers that in Acts chapter 15 and verse 38. He makes reference uh, to that when there was the Jerusalem conference and he particularly points out that was the point at which John Mark left. Uh, Acts 15.38 says, Paul thought not good to take with them who had departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So, you know, what was the reason for John Mark's defection? Was there a physical assault that happened there? Possibly. Did they suffer an unrecorded shipwreck? Remember, Paul wrote about three shipwrecks when he wrote to the Corinthians. That's before his journey to Rome. So somewhere... Uh, along, the, along the way, there were three shipwrecks that had happened. Maybe, maybe that was the cause of it. But they were going into an area which was particularly dangerous and this area was known as being full of marauding gangs of bandits and robbers which would need the protection of the Roman soldiers. Here's a little comment uh, from the book Archaeology and Bible History. It says, uh, the journey between Perga and Antioch due to a number of archaeological discoveries have been made in this region. Ramsey points out the number of inscriptions in that area refer to the armed police and soldiers who kept peace in this area. This may be the reason why John Mark went home, because they had to traverse this area, which is shown by inscriptions that require the protection of armed soldiers. Perhaps the prospect of an encounter with violent brigands helped John Mark decide to return home at this juncture. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 26 and 27 says, I've been in dangers of robbers, dangers in the wilds, many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst. And of course that reference relates to the journeys earlier preceding the third journey. So it would possibly relate to this uh, particular incident. Now again, just let's wind back and think about Barnabas. Too hard for Barnabas? Like this is an area that needed protection, physical protection by some of the Roman soldiers as you walked along these roads to, to another country because there's so many robbers up in the hills. You need physical protection. And Barnabas stuck with the Apostle Paul. He slogs on. He's probably mulling over this sort of disconnection that just happened with John Mark. I mean, it'd be so disappointing. Beginning of the mission work and John Mark defects. His family he's probably feels a bit embarrassed about that. He's mulling over this and he's going through some dangerous territory. I think it illustrates one thing. Barnabas wasn't a wimp. It wasn't just a shadow of the Apostle Paul. He walked alongside the Apostle Paul. There were hardships ahead of them and he faced them with the Apostle Paul. 
He was every man as equal as the Apostle Paul in his determination. Tough, tough journey. And I get that in the narrative because in verse 14, uh, at the end it says they sat down. I think, yeah, there was some physical refreshment there. It says, verse 14, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. I sort of get that sense of release that this has been a tough journey uh, and we get a bit of time to at least sit down and present the gospel message. Of course, well, verse 16 says, then Paul stood up. So again, it gives an illustration of the physical ability and the determination and the energy of the Apostle Paul. Scarcely sat down, Paul standing up again to preach the gospel. And Barnabas, of course, uh, stood up with him. So he gives a little bit of a, a, a talk there in that synagogue. And you'll notice he emphasises, I'm just going to switch across the Apostle Paul for a minute, he emphasises the resurrection of Christ. So a phrase worth colouring, it's in verse 30. Uh, God raised him from the dead, and then verse 33, in that he's raised up Jesus again. Verse 34, as concerning, he raised him up from the dead. So again, this was the very essence of the gospel message. This is a unique man that God has raised up, and, and there were witnesses of that particular resurrection. Of course, well, some of the Jews, as we note in verse 41, they rejected this whole preaching campaign. Um, and and Saul, uh, Paul there cites Habakkuk, and he says, you despise us. And so this was a, a turning point where many of the Jewish people, Paul was now recognising this, didn't want to hear about the resurrection of Christ. And of course, he's going to move his message across the Gentiles. But we want to pick up the point about Barnabas, because that's where our focus is. And here in verse 43, we've got this particular comment. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, both of them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, I see Barnabas' signature in this. Barnabas wasn't silent in verse 43. The record does not say, and so they followed the Apostle Paul, and they listened to the Apostle.